Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Ruth Clark, and together we talk with Caitlin Beatty about her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. In this conversation, we discuss how celebrities function like saints for a secular world, and also about how many of us in the church have welcomed celebrity culture as a way to get the message out. Might there not be unintended consequences to this choice? We hope you enjoy the conversation, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. I have this recurring experience. I'm trying to read the news, catching up on the latest happenings in the world, and suddenly I realize that I've been reading articles about celebrities. Why am I reading about this person? I ask myself. But I find that the world seems engineered to tell me that these beautiful, shining people are more worthy of my attention. I should care about their love lives, about their political views, about whatever else. And if I'm honest, I probably care more than I should. Celebrities embody many of the things that we idolize. Beauty, wealth, success, excitement. In a flattened, secular world, maybe celebrities are the closest thing we have to saints. Celebrities are the set-apart ones with a peculiar sort of power and gravity. People weep and wail when they can meet them snap selfies with them to broadcast their proximity to holiness, even pay top dollar to purchase their relics, clothing won by celebrities. Fame, or proximity to fame, becomes a route to fullness. Because we are all so social media saturated, we are all swimming in the world of personas and platforms, images and icons. But the things we make, make us. And social media has trained us to seek a minor kind of fame and visibility and resonance, posting content that generates as many clicks as possible, broadcasting images of competence and connectedness. Perhaps it is unsurprising that there are Christian celebrities, those who seem more competent and connected in spiritual things than the rest of us. And then there are the celebrities who also happen to be Christian, And we wonder if their greater platform could perhaps be used to reach more people with a Christian message. But when seeking celebrity becomes an outright strategy and an explicit pursuit, it's often not clear whose name is being lifted up and whose kingdom is being built. Indeed, in her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, Caitlin Beatty argues that celebrity is not just a bug, but a feature of the evangelical movement. And by embracing the values of celebrity culture, we have hurt our public witness and missed the harder, less sensational way of Jesus. What happens when the values of celebrity culture make their home in the church? What, if anything, can be done about this? And how do we reclaim authentic faith in a world of personal branding? We hope you enjoy this conversation. With Caitlin Beatty. A 
I'm joined now by two guests. The first is our guest co-host, managing editor of the In All Things Journal, Ruth Clark, who keeps the wheels on for us here at In All Things. Ruth, thanks for hosting with me. Glad to be here. And our feature guest is Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin is a writer, journalist, and editor. She's written for the New York Times, Washington Post. She is the former managing editor of Christianity Today. And she is the author of a new book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Caitlin, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you both. So the name of your book is Celebrities for Jesus. So let's start with the first part of that title, because there have always been people with more visibility, more social power, wider reach. But you write that celebrity is this uniquely modern thing, this modern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so why is that? Where did it come from? And then how Mm -hmm. does that drive so much of our popular culture, contemporary culture? Yeah, so celebrity... From the historian Daniel Borston, he offered a popular definition, which is that a celebrity is anybody who is known for his (laughs) well-knownness. And this was decades before the Kardashian family had their rise to power. He was really identifying uh, the artifice of modern fame that uh, if you have the tools of mass media at your disposal and you know how to work them and use their wizardry, you can project an image of well-knownness, of notoriety, without necessarily having had to have done anything. (laughs) I think fame has kind of operated traditionally as a byproduct of accomplishment or, in ancient times, something like military prowess or family lineage. But in our time, we don't know why we need to know who the Kardashians are. We just somehow know who they are, right? Because they have built an am- empire using the wizardry of mass media. So it really is a modern phenomenon in that it is inherently tied to the use and, I would argue, the abuses of mass media. So is it mass media that creates sort of the illusion of expertise or the illusion of competence Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, sometimes, oftentimes, we look up to people who are celebrities because of their accomplishments. But there Mm -hmm. also are celebrities, as you say, who are famous for being famous, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the key is not to assume that because someone has a massive social media following, or has, you know, appeared on TV, (laughs) or whatever, that oh, they haven't really done anything to to deserve that, right? But I think we we probably, when I'm thinking about our life in the church and how we feed celebrity in the church, we probably need to become a little bit more discerning about what those massive followings tell us. So I work in book publishing in my day-to-day job, And part of my job and the job of my colleagues is to assess book proposals that are coming in, you know, usually from agents, people who would like to publish books. And there are these oftentimes impressive numbers. Like I have these many followers, these many people attend my church, these many people are in my denomination, the people who have agreed to endorse my book, even though I haven't actually written it, uh, have these many followers. And we can become so easily enamored with numbers equals 
influence and stature and credibility. And I just want to say on the record, (laughs) numbers don't tell us a whole lot about, I would say, are the central dimensions of what is required for Christian Mm -hmm. leadership and prominence in the church. So that's just one example of how influence and notoriety can be, well, it could definitely be fudged. Uh, but it, I think it presents to us a kind of a shallow understanding of Christian leadership. And so we need to dig d- deeper into deeper questions about what we are asking of our leaders and the people who we put on platforms. Yeah, it reminds me, of no, I know of a, a TikTok evangelist who counts every view of his TikToks as a person reached with the gospel uh, of Christ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the second half of your title is for Jesus. And so you're writing about not just the phenomenon of celebrity uh, in general, but really about how this has infected the church um, mm-hmm. and how we have tended to prioritize charismatic, gifted individuals who can build a platform, who can draw a crowd. And mm-hmm. you write that uh, we've mimicked celebrity instead of challenging it, and that it is a feature rather than a bug of the contemporary evangelical movement. So I wonder if you could say more about that, because mm-hmm. others might say, well, yeah, of course, there have always been famous Christians. There, have been, there are Christian celebrities, but is that really central or is that really a feature of the mm-hmm. evangelical movement, which you know, a lot of times we define by the doctrines that, um, mm-hmm. you know, the distinctives, you know, that's what makes evangelicalism. And you're saying, mm-hmm. well, celebrity, we, sh- we also have to include celebrity, you know, along with the four components of the quadrilateral. The fifth one is celebrity. Yeah. So could you say more about <laughs> being a celebrity for Jesus? Yes. Well, even the fact that we call it Bebbington's quadrilateral just undergirds my point yeah. that we've made De- David Bebbington into a celebrity. Um, Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question, Justin. And I think obviously what you're touching on are the perennial debates, intramural debates among evangelicals about what an evangelical is and who gets to define it. So there's so many different ways to define evangelicalism as a phenomenon in, you know, in its United States and its American permutation. So when I say that celebrity is a feature, not a bug of the evangelical movement, what I don't mean is that it's the central feature. But I do think you can't understand how evangelicalism operates as a cultural and social phenomenon in the U.S. without looking at dynamics of celebrity. Mm. So it's not that the doctrinal definitions, the other cultural or racial dimensions aren't there. It's just we also have to look at this dimension. Um, so I would say today, when you, if you were to have talk to your average person in the pew, and I know that even that's problematic because who's the average person in the pew, but kind of self-defining evangelicalism, you know, attends church regularly, prays daily, reads the Bible, believes the Bible is inherent and inherent, (laughs) you know, all ticks all of the quadrilateral boxes, even though they may not be aware of the Bebbington quadrilateral. Part of what you have to look at is their consumption habits and how they define themselves as being attached to particular figures. Mm -hmm. So, George Marsden quipped that, you know, an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham. In our day, I might say 
an evangelical is anybody who likes Tim Keller or Beth Moore. There is there is a centralization of certain f- prominent figures who we attach to in a spiritual and emotional way that help to self-define us. I'm this kind of I'm the kind of evangelical who listens to Tim Keller sermons. I'm the kind of evangelical who reads Beth Moore Bible studies. I'm the kind of evangelical who listens to I don't know. When I was growing up, it was DC Talk and the Newsboys. <laughs> I don't know who the cool CCM artists are today. But uh, the way that celebrity helps evangelicals to define themselves as they attach to particular prominent figures in the movement, I would say that is a key feature of evangelicalism. So like that bug piece, it's not something that evangelicals are trying to get rid of. It's something that they are defining themselves with. Correct. I mean, like this idea of it's not a bug. It's it's not something that's bothering evangelicals. It's something that is mm. celebrated, or that's you know that's de- that's helpful in defining who they are. I think so. I mean, I think it. Of course, it depends. <laughs> you know, there are so many ways to slice and dice the evangelical mm-hmm. movement. So when I worked at Christianity Today magazine in the Chicago suburbs, again, an institution founded by uh, Billy Graham helped to found the magazine in 1956. Um, The magazine was always tasked with kind of covering trends within Mm. the national and global movement. At CT, we, we really tried to buck the trend in terms of our coverage. Mm. Mm. Like, we're not just going to report on the mega church <laughs> who's having yeah. a scandal, by the way, because of their fallen celebrity pastor. We're also going to report on, you know, Christians in India who yeah. um, are a persecuted minority and facing, mm-hmm. you know, government restrictions and violence from their neighbors. Like we tried really clearly in our coverage to say, you have to understand evangelicalism as more than the excesses of specific figures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you looked at the stories that were most clicked on and most read and most shared, without a doubt, it was the stories of people with, you know, sometimes it was positive stories, but people with people who were household names, who were celebrities in their own right, mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. both good and bad things <laughs> that we were covering. Yeah. Those were the stories that got shared the widest, that were most clicked on. We still did the stories about, you know, in you know, Christians in India kind of faithfully living out the gospel in obscurity, but that's not what, that's not what got eyeballs. So there's, mm-hmm. that kind of speaks to, as leaders, we were trying to shift focus, but of course, in a mass media consumption habits, it was the stories of celebrities, both good and bad, that got the most attention. Your book addresses the stardom that many Christians feel drawn to. Do you think there can be healthy ways of Christians gathering at lectures, music concerts, stadiums Mm. that lead to a greater faithfulness to the gospel? Or do you feel like there's this amount that just even the big name celebrity, athletes, musicians, speakers, authors, or maybe even people, we don't know why they're famous, but they are, so we go to Mm -hmm. the thing, um, have the reality of... With that dynamic, it's the reality of changing us subtly into consumers without mm. our notice. Yeah. So 
I think that there are I think that there are ways for Christian figures to gain a level of prominence for good work and mm-hmm. navigate that fame and steward it well. <laughs> so we're talking about specific individuals. I can think of, you know, many many Christian authors, leaders who I would say they became famous for good accomplishments, for good contributions to the kingdom through their oftentimes through written or spoken communication. Of course, communicators hope that they receive, (laughs) uh, that they get a hearing. So the fact that people want to listen to you or resonate with what you're communicating isn't bad in and of itself. I do see, though, even with those healthy Christian leaders with some level of notoriety, I'm, I'm more concerned about what is happening among the fans and how easy it is to shift our focus away from the kind of content or quality of the work that's being offered and the person themselves as a kind of godlike figure is too strong, but someone with like, you know, a a spiritual superhero. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And even when we, you know, attend their lectures or listen to their podcasts, or, you know, if we're really lucky, we, we manage to get a selfie with them and put it on Instagram or Twitter. It's so easy for our celebration of their work to become a celebration of the person that verges on idolization, you know, and the way that we interact with them or see them is not actually grounded in our knowledge of them as a person away from the spotlight or off the platform. It's kind of the persona or the image that they're presenting and that we attach to. I think for Christians, sometimes what happens is that we're dissatisfied with the ordinariness and the difficulty of normal Christian life <laughs> and how unglamorous it is and how hard it is and yeah. how, uh, you know, we wonder day to day, year to year, are we growing into Christ likeness? Is our, li- are our lives making a difference? How do I know? Are we having an impact? We talk about impact quite a bit. But these people, you know, the people who are on the stages or packing stadiums, have their books on the bestseller list, get invited to the White House, they clearly are making a difference. They're clearly having a kingdom impact. And so even if we can't experience that ourselves in our daily lives, we can at least kind of attach to someone as a hero and idolize or hope to kind of model something or or gain something of the glow that they give off, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I, I think there's something um, kind of spiritual happening there. I don't think it's spiritual in a good sense. <laughs> like, I don't think it's right. I think it's spiritual yeah. in a dangerous sense, but I think it, it, atta- it connects to kind of ultimate allegiance and attachment that we have to examine. And just because it's a Christian that we're putting on a pedestal doesn't mean that putting anyone putting anyone on right. a pedestal is okay, right? Even if yeah. we would say they're doing good work. Does that make sense? Exactly. There's the need to guard the heart. I mean, it's a posture of the heart versus the oh, amazement in the stardom or whatever like that the attendees need, need to um, practice probably 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but would would you say there are ways that like the event organizers or just the the person themselves who who mm-hmm. are on the stage for the work they've done mm-hmm. do this practice of guarding mm-hmm. their own celebrities like mm-hmm. th- they create a separation in order to to not fall into that being put on a pedestal right like mm-hmm. i think of the new testament where paul was being glorified, right? It, um, and he he kind of runs at them and says, "No, don't don't make me into something that we are men just only, like you. Yeah, we are men just like you. Yeah. It's it's Jesus that we're serving. But you know, lack of book signing or lack of mm, mm. I, I don't know. Is are there mm-hmm. things like that that you've heard of that that help um, mm-hmm. <laughs> control? You're thinking that really practically about kind of the people who have responsibility to curate an event or a space you yeah. are ha- you're bringing somebody in who you know your organization will be you know people in the organization will be excited to hear from you're paying them something you're probably trying to put them up in a decent hotel <laughs> and offer them a decent meal like <laughs> there's a level of i guess the christianese would be like showing honor <laughs> um you know that people will want to interact with them before and after the event. You're thinking, mm-hmm. how do I not, how do we as the organizers not feed the problem? Is that yeah. what you're asking? Yeah. I, and it's maybe just a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm interested yeah. in this because I, a, a couple times I have been at events. I think about the green room. It's kind of this like, VIP backstage area where speakers and sometimes like their entourage (laughs) will come and spend time before or after the event. It's kind of like a lounge area for the speakers. There's usually lots of food and beverages and kind of a a space to where the speakers can talk to one another, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, we're, we're in the room together. How exciting. Speakers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wonder if you don't, either you don't do a green room, you know, like you don't have the set apart space where that kind of solidifies the sense that we are deserving of special treatment because we've been let into the green room. Certainly, if you have spent any time in the green room, don't get on stage and say, I was just talking to so-and-so in the green room, and he's doing amazing <laughs> Like, there's a way that Christian leaders can kind of, like, brag, but make it sound Christian. Like, don't talk about the green room, you know, like, that. that seems unhealthy. Yeah, part of the... Part of the larger question, I think, is just we have an online journal, you know, with a modest following and we have a podcast and, you know, you always Mm -hmm. worry that you're participating in this thing. Like I know videos get more clicks than, you know what I mean? And so then Mm -hmm. that that itself like is playing into the kind of image consciousness that we tend to have, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's a question that touches on Christian publishing, you know, anyone who's Mm -hmm. making content, putting somebody on a stage, hosting conferences, Mm-hmm. You feel like you're swimming. It's almost like there's a groove that's already been set and you just mm-hmm. kind of fall into the groove and do it the way that everybody does it. Yeah, we. I would say we. anybody who is in a Christian media space, whether that is podcasting, you know, website creation and curation, book publishing, 
creating TikTok videos that, <laughs> you know, share the gospel, like even it, it's easy for like Brazos or in all things to say like, yeah, but we're not that, you know, we're modest, mm-hmm. but, but I think you're right, Justin, that we're swimming in the waters. Like this is something bigger than any one organization or leader can resist and change on their own. And I think it it takes, it's going to take significant, deliberate checks on how we do our businesses, you know, how we run our ministries and businesses to start changing, at the very least, consumer expectation. Yeah. And that's maybe the next question, uh, because you've worked for years in the publishing industry. You're an acquisitions editor, um, and that yet you have pretty strong things to say about the publishing industry and especially about the Christian publishing industry. Just read a quote. You write, the book publishing industry and the agents, publicists, brand consultants, social media managers, and conference organizers connected to it has added jet fuel to the problem of Christian celebrity to the tune of $1.22 billion in sales in 2018 alone. And I can testify, it's really daunting uh, to feel like I have to get enough of a, a platform to even make my podcasting, my writing worth its while. Even this morning, I, Beth Allison Barr posted something about, I have 47,000 Twitter followers, and that's 3,000 less than most publishers want you to have before you can publish anything. You know, mm-hmm. an, an ordinary person or, you know, a modest author reads that and, and say, why would I even try mm-hmm. to do that if, if only megachurch pastors and social media mm-hmm. stars are the ones who get book publishing contracts. And so mm-hmm. you in your book talk about this for a whole chapter. And mm-hmm. what are some of the ways forward for content creators, uh, mm-hmm. publishers, authors, podcast hosts, and the institutions that they serve? What what would it take for us to reform the industry? What, what would be some mm-hmm. of the practices and paradigm shifts we'd need to have in order to mm-hmm. do this better? Yes. Well, I don't expect that all of your listeners will have seen Beth Allison Barr's tweet, <laughs> but I saw it. And full disclosure, Brazos Press, who I work for, is also her publisher. So I was like, oh, that's so interesting, Beth. You, you, you put that out there. So I think she was saying that she was 3,000 followers shy of what agents tell you you need in order right. to get a book deal. But her story is illuminating in that when Brazos, you know, started talking with her several years ago about book ideas, she had 3,000 followers. And really, our interest in her work was really about her work. You know, she was writing for Patheo. She was starting to do uh, public talks and what she's writing about the topic itself is of import to a lot of contemporary Christians. And so I think about that time and I think about, I I am grateful for the fact that, you know, Brazos and Baker publishing group, because we are an independently owned Christian company, we can take some risks in a way that I think some of the other bigger publishers that are owned by multinational conglomerates essentially often feel pressure to kind of serve the bottom line. So I think there's there's a dynamic there where there's something to be said about maintaining kind of Christian missional independence. And with that, I think comes the opportunity to take risks. You know, I think all of us 
want to be able to pursue new ideas, host new conversations, to take creative risks, uh, and to start conversations that we think are going to serve the church, regardless of the size of the followership of, you know, the communicator or expert. And so I would just say, you know, leaning into that risk taking. And of course, you know, Beth's story is we took the risk. <laughs> it was a relatively modest risk, but it like it paid off, you know, but if if we're not willing to take risks, if we only are, for just for example, signing book deals with people who have so many followers who have hit in this kind of level of influence, are we actually squeezing out people whose ideas and views and teaching deserve a broad hearing? Are we actually limiting ourselves and, and feeding into our own blind spots by only taking bets on what we know, quote unquote, will work? And I also think what can happen is people who kind of aspire to share their ideas or teachings with the broader church, look at people who are doing it successfully and think, I have to become like them in order to disseminate my ideas or my teaching. And there is this level of, I know authenticity is a complicated word. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think that being authentic to ourselves is like the ultimate goal for any of us. But I do think there's something to be said about acknowledging who God has made us to be with both our strengths and gifts and our also our limitations and just recognizing that there are things that Beth Moore can do that I could never do. And I shouldn't try to do because if I tried, everybody could see what I'm doing and it would feel so weird and inauthentic. But I think anybody who's kind of in the space of wanting to put something out there has to kind of just grapple with how God has made them to be what God has actually called you to do. And ultimately kind of redefining our understanding of success, you know, and that's where you get to, okay, what if I only have 5,000 followers, but actually those followers are deeply invested in what I'm putting out into the world. And so just from a numerical standpoint, it looks like I have a smaller scope of influence, but in fact, I'm able to go deeper and have more long lasting kind of effects because of my long-term investment in those core number of people. I mean, Jesus only had 12 disciples, you know, like, <laughs> like how inefficient of him, you know, when he could have had so many more fans and followers. Right. Yeah. So you're saying there's a way to even sort of think small or even think local, you know, when it comes to social media platforms or, or the reach, it doesn't have to be the super, you know, Instagram star or TikTok star, you know, with millions of followers, there's levels to it that you can actually have a level of fidelity and faithfulness to a smaller, smaller community to which you are more accountable and connected. I like that. Caitlin, and thinking about faith formation, I, I feel like m the three of us are close to probably the same age. And we I think we we see the transition that's happening. Um, what advice would mm. you have for young adults who have not lived through the transitions? This is just all they they know, um, the platforms mm. and mm -hmm. the following. Mm -hmm. So 
they know nothing different from their social media presence as a way to gather information, to be influenced in their spirituality through apps, online devotions, overtly Christian culture, profiteers. Mm -hmm. Any advice you would give um, to those listeners? Are we talking about Generation Z, essentially? Yeah. Yes, the Zoomers. Well, (laughs) so I have limited interaction with that generation in my day-to-day life. I will say there's actually a way that that, my younger cohorts have used social media that I actually find really creative and Mm -hmm. kind of earnest. And going back to this acquaintance of yours, Justin, who has the TikTok uh, evangelistic platform, like there is something in that. And granted, I'm not I have not watched it. I don't know that I will. But like there's some there's some (laughs) intent there, I think, that probably started off really pure. Like I, I want to reach my peers for Jesus. I know that my peers are spending several hours a day on this platform. So I'm going to go to where the people are, you know, that, that impulse of using the tools of mass media that help connect with people where they live their lives is so core to the evangelical impulse, you know, like Billy Graham wanted to be on radio because he knew that his peers were listening to radio throughout the day. So I wouldn't ever say we we need to get off social media to have a pure faith. I think when you talk to, well, to all of us, but maybe most acutely people of the younger generation, you tend to find an increased amount of time engaging with social media platforms and a decreased amount of time compared with previous generations to interacting with people in the flesh, (laughs) like just Mm -hmm. hanging out, you know, doing the things that teenagers have done for decades and decades. And because of that, there is a risk of increased isolation, loneliness, you know, for, for lots of young women, there is a very intense pressure around body image and that amount of time on social media when people are starting to really form uh, their own identity and values. Like I I would say for anybody in that generation, just really investing in in in-person relationship and balancing how much time you spend on the apps with time in person. I think that's how God made us it just even in our neurobiology, in our emotional, spiritual, psychological lives, and for our own health, we need to be with people in the flesh. We need to be in embodied community and certainly being intentional about placing limits on the amount of time and energy engaging the apps and reinvesting in the people in our lives. So, Caitlin, you uh, note in your book that uh, celebrity worship shows this spiritual hunger in a time when traditional forms of worship and community are declining. And I've always felt, and even the way that you described it earlier, that the way that we think about and interact with celebrities is the closest thing we have to saints, uh, Mm -hmm. secular saints. 
uh, you know, if I could only touch the hem of their garment, you know, the way mm-hmm. that people respond, it's almost like they have a power, you know, for a disenchanted world, celebrity mm-hmm. is pretty magical, mm-hmm. uh, the experience of meeting one. And so I wonder if you could just say more about that spiritual dimension of our obsession with celebrity and whether we have in some ways exchanged the traditional understanding of what it means to be a saint mm-hmm. and uh, or to have holiness to one that's mm-hmm. more fueled by visibility, fame, notoriety. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say more about that? Yeah. You know, I try to watch some of the Olympics every two years. <laughs> I do like the summer better than the winter, just FYI. Um, and, you know, without fail, there are these moments where these athletes who have been training for their whole lives for these moments who are just at the top of their game can do things with their bodies that most of us could never dream of. There are these moments of transcendence where we see kind of the glory of human capacity and how God has made the human form and body to do these incredible things. And I I use transcendence deliberately. Like I think there is something going on when we uh, see fellow image bearers perform with excellence and we kind of feel like they are doing what they were born to do. (laughs) They are, they are doing the thing that God made them to do that I think rightly oriented kind of leads us to praise the creator to say, Oh, if this is just a dim reflection of the image of God, what is God like? <laughs> and we're just getting a glimpse of the glory and endless creative capacity of the creator. And instead, it's almost like our eyes don't look up high enough. Like we rest on the person and the image bearer rather than the one whose image they bear. And, you know, all of us, I think, are kind of tempted to do this. Um, even if we have the right proper Christian understanding of kind of what's going on when we observe someone doing something with excellence, I think we, we worship an invisible God. And so, um, but we, but we want these physical manifestations or touchstones in the creative world of who God is. So we kind of, we rest on other creative beings. I mean, Romans one, Paul describes what, what has gone wrong. We, we worship creation instead of the creator. And yeah, I, I I think this can kind of creep into the Christian world as well, even though we, we kind of know better, I think kind of in our affections or how we spend our time and energy and attention, we can kind of not look up high enough. We can kind of let our eyes rest too low um, I was talking with someone last week who referred to modern celebrities as like modern priests, like some kind of mediator between God and creation. And they play this mediating role between heaven and earth when we we want to be connected to heaven, but we worship an invisible God. So we look for physical manifestations and we rest on that instead of looking up. And I thought that was really, I never put the kind of the, the framing of priest around it, but I think that's a, mm-hmm. a really insightful point. I really like that idea of we, we just don't look quite high enough. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Throughout the reading, I kept thinking about the title of Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad to be 
just on this journey with you that uh, knowing there are hundreds of thousands of other faithful, unknown, obscure followers of Jesus, loving God by, by serving and knowing others in the mundane and the unimpressive elements of life. Uh, you mentioned many faithful saints and fictional hero, um, the fictional heroine from Middlemarch in your last chapter. Are there some additional resources or some that are listed in your, in your book that mm-hmm. you'd like to highlight for our listeners and for Christians desiring to be encouraged to be those faithful, obscure followers of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Ones who don't have a platform. Yeah. In some ways, in my, my book is primarily a diagnostic analysis of what's gone mm-hmm. wrong. But when people yeah. ask, like, well, how do we fix this? What do we do? How do we, you know, detox the church from celebrity? I'm like, I, I don't have anything new to offer because people <laughs> like Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, Henry Nowen. And then, of course, they were drawing from the, the Christian greats, you know, the mothers and fathers of the faith over the centuries. They, too, weren't necessarily offering anything new in terms of their articulation of that long obedience in the same direction. So I think Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, and to some extent, Stanley Howard was in particular, were helping to connect the wisdom of the Christian teachings around obscurity and hiddenness and kind of faithfulness Mm -hmm. over success to particular modern anxieties and temptations. And so I would definitely point listeners to their books. But yeah, when people ask, like, well, how do we fix this? I'm like, go read Eugene Peterson. Like, I, <laughs> like you know, I, they, you know, Andy Crouch pointed this out to me, like they were writing and teaching to not insignificant effect, you know, over the last mm-hmm. 30, 40 years, they certainly had people who, who were really listening and heeding what they had to say. But all of that was happening at the same time that like Mark Driscoll was going from outrage to outrage. And you almost have these twin impulses where just as like Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard are saying, no, 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 like warning against some of these temptations, we are still kind of propping up and celebrating people who are doing the exact opposite of what they're telling us. So I think the the vision that writers like that are offering is always going to be less seemingly less popular and seemingly less significant. It's always going to seem smaller. It's always going to seem less flashy. And that's exactly the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if I could just read that quote from Elliot, you know, that you pull out of Middlemarch, which is so good. It says, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who have lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So good. Yeah, go read Middlemarch. I would also tell your listeners to go read Middlemarch. <laughs> I mean, it's only on 800 pages long, long. in right. <laughs> obscure English text, but yes. it's a beautiful depiction of just that, uh, a hidden life. Well, our guest has been Caitlin Beatty. The book is Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church, published with Brazos Press. Caitlin, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks so much for having me. It was a really good conversation. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.